record to this cloud. Okay. Um, okay. So if you'll remember, uh, first Corinthians isn't exactly a happy letter. Um, the apostle Paul loved the Corinthian church. He planted the Corinthian church, but the Corinthian church had a lot of problems. Uh, the Corinthian church was extraordinary. Uh, it was exceptionally gifted, equipped with knowledge, skills, and abilities. I mean, if we had met the Corinthian church, we've, we would have been pretty impressed. Uh, and you might think, okay, cool. Like what's the, what's the problem then? Uh, well, that was a problem. Uh, the problem was the Corinthian church's giftedness, not ungiftedness. To be clear, uh, the problem wasn't that they did have gifts and abilities. That they had gifts was simply owing to the God who gives abundantly and graciously. But the problem was how they used their gifts and abilities. That despite their giftedness, the Corinthian church was a mess. Rather than being an influence in the culture, the culture of Corinth began to seep into uh, the life of the church. Um, and so Corinthian culture prized status. They prized gifts, skills, abilities. It prized the outward appearance. Uh, it was the survival of the fittest or the smartest or the prettiest. And eventually the Corinthian church began to see the gifts that they've been given by God in that way. They fought over their leaders, over who was the most eloquent, the most gifted. They fought over their liberties at the expense of others. They drew attention to themselves because of their gifts and inadvertently drew people's attention away from Jesus himself. They thought that just because they were skilled, they could gloat and, and look down on other people. Uh, they took the gifts that God had given them to build their own influence and platforms. They were a bunch of nobodies pretending to be somebodies. And all of this caused disunity and chaos in the church, as you guys will uh, most likely remember, at least for some of you. And so, like I mentioned, 1 Corinthians was not a happy letter. The Apostle Paul has to do the difficult task of addressing and rebuking the Corinthian church. In fact, all of the Apostle Paul's letters to the Corinthians were not happy. Uh, the Apostle Paul writes a total of four letters to the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians, the letter that we're reading, is technically Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. And 2 Corinthians is technically his fourth and final letter to the Corinthians. And in God's mercy, only two were preserved as scripture. But this is the context that we need to remember as we look at our passage tonight. And as we look at our passage tonight, I, I do want to point out that chapter 14, along with parts of chapter 15 even, are some of the hardest to understand of the Apostle Paul's writings for numerous, numerous reasons. Um, obviously, I can't spell out all those reasons, but the biggest reason uh, is simply because we, don't, we didn't live during their time. Uh, we're not familiar with uh, the customs, the culture, or the history. So the culture gap is pretty vast between us and the first century Christians. But even though the Apostle Paul's words are hard, we remember that all scripture, including his, is breathed out by God and is profitable and beneficial for us. And so rather than skipping over or ignoring the heart and the hard and less digestible parts of scripture, God wants us to wrestle with his word, even in our weakness, to understand and to apply. And so again, if, like I mentioned, if you guys have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We are back in chapter 14. But chapter 14, verses 20 uh, to 33, to the first half of uh, verse 33. Um, I'm going to make sure to pin my, my spotlight my video. Sorry, guys. I don't mean to be narcissistic, but I figure you guys might be distracted. So uh, chapter 14, verses 20 to 33. Okay. Verse 20, this is what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, continuing on in verse 20, he says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. In the law, it is written by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will, will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together 
and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all the secrets of his heart and are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Believe it or not, this is God's word. Uh, opening question for you guys. What does it mean to be mature? Just ask that, self, ask that question to yourself. What does it mean to be mature? Um, there are many things that I love about being a youth pastor, um, but at least at least several years ago, one of my biggest peeves as a youth pastor, biggest pet peeves as a youth pastor, uh, is when people don't take me seriously because because I am the youth pastor. Uh, for example, several summers ago, uh, we at, at the youth staff or the the pastoral staff, we invite a pastor to come for what's called lunch with a pastor, and we invite a pastor to come and he shares his wisdom, and we introduce ourselves. Um, but we had a pastor who had come by to share what he had learned as a new church planter. And all the pastors at Lighthouse had gone around sharing uh, their names and which ministry they pastored. And when it came to me without answering, without me answering, I should say, the pastor who had visited said, no, wait, let me guess. You are the youth guy, right? And we all laughed, even myself included. But secretly in my head, I was like, dude, what the heck? Like, what's that supposed to mean, man? Now, as I had mentioned before and earlier, I love being a youth pastor. I am mostly proud to be your pastor. Just kidding. I am proud. Um, but my biggest pet peeve is the connotations built around the, the role of youth pastor. Um, it was the, it's the underlying of, uh, assumption that youth pastors just play, don't do anything serious, which I feel like is somewhat demeaning to uh, youth pastors and the youth that he ministers to. Uh, so if you really want to get on my nerves, now you know. But because I was so bothered by it, I had to really reflect on why it did. Um, and it was because I, I thought that being called the youth guy was a low-key roast on my own maturity, not realizing that to be irked by those same comments only showed my real lack of maturity. Um, and so that was the irony. By compensating for my maturity, I was actually demonstrating my immaturity and my insecurity. But I can confidently, confidently say now uh, that as a 30-year-old pastoring a bunch of 14 to 18-year-olds, I don't really care anymore. Like I'm like twice your age, so I got over it. Uh, or at least I better get over it. Um, honestly, the older I get, like the more aware I am of my own immaturity. So great hope for all of us getting older, but let me ask you again, what does it mean to be a mature Christian? Is it knowing a lot of theology, having a lot of gifts, natural talent, ability? Is it going to church for a long time, as you can remember? Is it knowing how to silence Christianity's critics? Is it reading the Bible through a year, uh, in a year, which I'm sure you're all on track to do this year? Is it memorizing scripture, being nice to your annoying siblings? Is it knowing when to say something and knowing when not to say something? Is it being able to lead a small group, teach, or even preach? What is our standard of maturity? What, what does it, for you, what, what, what does it mean to be mature? Now, maturity is not less than those things, but when those things become the exclusive standard, they end up dividing and not, divide, and not uniting God's community. 
In the previous passage, the passage that my friend Daniel had preached from back in November, uh, the Apostle Paul exposes the problem in, this, in the Corinthians' supposed maturity. Rather than using their God-given gifts to love one another, to build each other up, they had used it to serve themselves, to, to elevate themselves, to exalt themselves. The Corinthians had a standard of maturity that actually proved their immaturity. <clears throat> because if they were truly wise and mature, they would not have appealed to how much they knew, how successful they were, how charismatic they were, how gifted they were, or how beautiful they were as the basis for their maturity. If the Corinthians truly were mature, they wouldn't have used their God-given gifts to tear others down. And so in our passage tonight, the, the Apostle Paul is calling not only the Corinthian Christians, but us, Lighthouse Community Church, this youth group, this high school group, to grow up. That is the main point of our passage tonight. If you forget everything else, that is the main point, to grow up. The key idea that we should all be taking away from this message is that a people centered on Jesus, the Messiah, grow up and build up. The first point is this, this actually this passage is easily broken down into two parts. The first is that we grow up. We grow up. Take a look at verse 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. Now, just so you know that I'm not being mean. I mean, we see it in the text. There it is. Paul is saying to grow up, to be mature in your thinking. Don't be like a kid, in other words. But the Apostle Paul is kind of shady, like, because by saying, do not be children in your thinking, he's assuming that the Corinthians are acting like children. Like, if I called you guys children, almost none of you guys would have it. Why? Because you guys aren't kids. I mean, if, I, if we ever got to go to Disneyland ever again, none of us would qualify for kids' prices. I mean, maybe some of us would, but, but the deepest irony is that kids hate being called kids. And yet here's the Apostle Paul calling us children. I mean, this is nothing new. Back in, um, back in chapters two and three, Paul has already called the Corinthians babies and children. And so what makes his calling us children here unique and different? Well, it's because Paul first says that there is a right way to be a child. He says to be infants in evil. Now, what does that mean? Well, when you're an infant, you have far less experience doing dumb and stupid stuff than a 16-year-old would who storms Del Amo Mall with hundreds of other high schoolers in the middle of the night. The only time to be childlike is with regard to innocence, not maturity. But ironically, for the Corinthians, this was flipped. They were mature in their evil and immature in their thinking. They failed in doing things right, and they succeeded in doing things wrong. But here's what strikes me as uh, somewhat sad. I mentioned earlier that the Apostle Paul had, had started the Corinthian church. He planted the church. So in a real meta metaphorical way, Paul was like their mother. After, this, after starting the church in Corinth and staying there for a year and a half, he goes on to other places to plant churches. About a year or two later, uh, Paul receives his first letter from the Corinthians. And it's when the Corinthian church is in its fifth year as a church that Paul writes 1 Corinthians, this letter right here. Paul writes, the, to, I mean, just think about it for a second. Paul writes to the Corinthian church roughly five years after they had planted. And you would expect that having been discipled, planted by the Apostle Paul, that there will be no problems in that after five years of Christian experience being planted, being discipled by the Apostle Paul, you would have thought that you were on your way to be a model Christian community. I mean, at least that, would, that is what I would think if the Apostle Paul discipled all of us. But as we know by now, the Corinthian church is actually one of the few churches that Paul had planted with the most problems. What does this all mean? It means at the very least that you can be a Christian for three months or even 10 years and still act like a kiddie Christian. What this means at the very least is that maturity sometimes has nothing to do with your age at all. You can be a Christian since your birth and still have the maturity of a six-year-old child. 
if you think about it, what makes it what makes a child a child? When we say that this 40-year-old is acting like a child, what do we what do we mean by that? What we mean is a characteristic childlike behavior is behavior that only thinks about themselves because they have not yet been trained to think about anyone except for themselves. Someone who acts like a kid is someone who can't help but think about themselves. Therefore, maturity isn't merely how long you've been a Christian or how long you've been going to church. In other words, you can't bank on your parents as a sign of your maturity. You can't bank on the people that you have been who have who have discipled you um, as a sign of your maturity. You some some of you have been Christians for a long time. Maybe some of you grew up in the church, and yet you're acting in a completely childlike way. And it is here that the Apostle Paul is calling you to grow up, to wake up at least to who you really are, to wake up to who you to, to who you profess to be. What we come to understand about maturity is that maturity isn't evaluated in terms of what you know what you have, how long you've been going to Lighthouse Community Church for, what kinds of people you know, what kind of family you belong to. Maturity, unlike immaturity, is completely relational. Like I mentioned, what makes childlike behavior childlike is that they, have, they, they cannot think for themselves. Maturity, on the other hand, is able to think about other people. It is completely relational. It is how we defer, consider, help, and meet the needs of others, of considering the needs of others as more important than our own. And our, than our own. And I know that all of us, this, this is, a, I think, a message and a theme that I've been harping on with you guys for like the longest time. But I think we know that sometimes we forget. But that, that maturity is not cognitive, but relational. It is evaluated, assessed, and affirmed in the context of human relationships and community. In fact, take a look at verses 21 and 23. It says, in the law, it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the, by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? Now, if you remember um, the previous passage, and honestly, it's, again, it's hard to fault you for not remembering because we've been out of 1 Corinthians for so long. But even if you don't remember, <clears throat> my friend Daniel began the Apostle Paul's discussion on tongues and prophecies back at the start of chapter 14. And the TLDR, too long, don't remember version, is that prophecies are better than tongues. Not because one is inherently inferior to the, to the other, but because tongues have the potential to draw attention to yourself while prophecy has the greater potential to draw attention away from yourself. Speaking a foreign language, if you remember, um, that you yourself don't know isn't a flex, but really a hindrance. Why? Because it tends to put the spotlight on you. It tends to self-inflate, to self-promote. Worst of all, it doesn't help. Speaking in tongues doesn't benefit Christians. But now in verses 20 to 25, the Apostle Paul is saying that speaking in tongues doesn't benefit non-Christians either. And he does this by quoting a passage from Isaiah chapter 28. In Isaiah's time, Israel was about to get owned and invaded by the Assyrians. They were about to get carried away and exiled for their unbelief and their rebellion. And the way that they will know is when they hear foreign people from foreign places speaking a foreign language. In the case of unbelieving Israel, the presence of a foreign tongue was a sign of judgment, not a sign of blessing. If you heard someone speaking a language other than Hebrew outside your door, you were in trouble because you were going to get dragged away 
from your home and forced into a place that was not your home. Now, why does the Apostle Paul quote such an intense passage and use it here with the Corinthians, especially in light of this topic of maturity, of growing up? Because this is what the Corinthians were doing with the non-Christians coming to visit church. To speak a foreign language in the presence of a non-Christian is the same as speaking a foreign language in the presence of unbelieving Israel. It would, un, it would alienate non-Christians and separate them from any hope of the gospel. In other words, tongues don't benefit non-Christians in the same way that tongues don't benefit Christians either. Because tongues don't bring anyone closer to God except for themselves. Now, the million dollar question is, okay, who cares? Like, that's the Corinthians. They spoke in tongues, whatever. They can, uh, we probably can't. So why does this matter? Now, if the use of tongues and prophecy, immaturity and maturity, fundamentally comes down to, the, uh, to choosing to do what's beneficial for you or what's beneficial for others, then let's apply this principle to our non-Christian relationships, just as the Apostle Paul does. One way to see what you're really like, whether you are mature or immature, is how you treat not only the Christians in your life, but the non-Christians in your life. Because honestly, I know for most of you, if not all of you, it's not the Christians in your life you're trying to impress, but really the non-Christians. Because I know that for most of you anyway, your closest friends are non-Christians. So let me ask you a question. When you hang out with your non-Christian friends, and trust me, I know that you guys do, do you do what benefits them or do you do what benefits you? Do you act in a way with your non-Christian friends that pushes them toward Jesus or pushes them away from Jesus? Do you live in such a way that alienates them from the Christian faith or encourages them toward the Christian faith? Do you live in such a way that confirms the hypocrisies of Christians or the convictions of Christians? Does your presence with your friends bring people closer to God or does it lead them far, farther away from him? Now, what are these ways that I'm talking about? Well, first, maybe perhaps the most obvious is when we are faced with a situation where sharing and participating in an activity where your friends may compromise Christian convictions and integrity, do you risk compromising for the sake of gaining your friend's approval? Or do you risk compromising for the sake of your friends not calling you lame? Would you rather have friends who alienate, alienate from you or would you rather alienate from Jesus so that you would not be alienated from your friends? In that situation, do you actually benefit yourself or do you benefit your friends? In that situation, doing what benefits your non-Christian friends might mean that you actually do risk losing your approval, their approval by not sharing in what they do or by voicing your disagreement with what they're doing. How about another situation? Does your support, alignment, and approval with any particular political movement or agenda actually alienate people from the Christian faith or does it encourage them toward the Christian faith? Does your support of something actually clarify Jesus' purpose for coming or does it just confuse Jesus' purpose for coming? Sometimes loving your friends does not mean accepting, approving, or adopting their lifestyles just so you can fit in with them or so that you so that they know that you stand with them. And I can go on and on, but as I, 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 it is in these distinct relationships and these friendships with perhaps our closest relationships that our maturity or immaturity is tested and revealed. A mature Christian will look at their non-Christian friends and ask, what is actually objectively most beneficial for them? What is biblically most helpful for them? Am I doing anything in any way that is obstructing or blocking their view of Jesus? 
Earlier in chapter one, the Apostle Paul mentions that the cross is foolish to those who are perishing. Why? Because the message of a God-man coming to die for sinners, for most modern and pre-modern people like the Corinthians, is simply unbelievable. I mean, think about it for a second. What, What is the gospel message for a second? It is simply that an executed criminal claiming to be the Messiah from a despised race, the Hebrews, and a conquered nation, Israel, died on a crucifix outside the gates of Jerusalem between two criminals dying a death for sinners. But the creator God would create, would, would raise him up from the dead. And, uh, and on the third day, he would conquer sin and death. And now that some, that, and now that same crucified peasant carpenter is now king of the universe, calling out a people for himself, the church, to faith and obedience and returning to establish his kingdom on earth. What do you guys think? Is that message unbelievable, believable? I mean, it's pretty obvious, right? It's a pretty, it's a pretty scandalous message. The word of the cross was a scandalous message. The message of the cross is already scandalous as it is, already stumbling as it is. And somehow messengers of the cross add even more scandal to the message. I mean, somehow Christians turn the best news in the whole world into the, into the worst news. How? Because how we behave betrays what we actually believe. It is immaturity and worst of all, tarnishing when the story of your life does not match up with the story of the gospel. The apostle Paul says that it's time to grow up. It isn't even about tongues and prophecies here. It's about whether your witness as a Christian is beneficial or harmful to your non-Christian friends. So if the use of tongues, that which is unhelpful, marks out what is immature, then what does mark out maturity? What kind of witness should we offer instead? Take a look at verse 24. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. Now, going back to my original question, what does it mean to be a mature Christian? How would the Corinthians have answered that question? Well, I think we would probably know. Influenced by the culture's understanding of maturity and wisdom, for the Corinthians to be a mature Christian meant that you had arrived at an advanced stage of spiritual insight and perfection, while those who are immature are those who have not arrived at all. But here, here in this passage, maturity takes on a different form. Maturity, the process of growing up, is knowing what benefits and knowing what doesn't benefit others. It's here that the Apostle Paul is challenging our core assumptions of what it means to be mature. You see, for the Corinthians, their standard of wisdom and maturity were primarily standards of knowledge because knowledge is power. And while many of us think maturity in cognitive terms, Paul redefines maturity in relational terms, like I mentioned before. So what is true maturity then? Here, the apostle Paul offers prophecy as a better alternative than tongues. Unlike tongues, which benefits no one, prophecy benefits everyone, even non-Christians. Why? Because, I mean, if you think about it, both are speech. Tongues and and prophecy are both speech, both use words. But the only difference is that one speech doesn't benefit and the other does. I mean, if you think about it, what is prophecy anyway? Prophecy is nothing other than simply speaking God's words on God's behalf. There's nothing fancy about it. It doesn't draw attention to yourself, but only to the person that you're speaking about. But notice the the kind of effect the speech has on a non-Christian in verse 25. It says, the secrets of his heart are disclosed. 
And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. The only, if you, I mean, just think about it for a second, okay? The only kind of speech that can actually do this, that can reveal the, the secrets of our hearts, the, the sins of our hearts, that can convict and bring confession, that brings people to their knees and to fall on their faces, that can cause someone to turn from worshiping false gods to the true and living God, that can make someone who was once blind but can now see, can only be one kind of speech. It is a speech that is incensed by the aroma of Jesus Christ. In other words, prophetic speech here, according to the Apostle Paul, is nothing other than gospel speech. Mature speech is gospel speech. Speech that builds up is none other than speech that brings people, that leads people, that excites people to Jesus Christ, not away from him. And the greatest proof, the greatest affirmation of the truth of the gospel, if you think about it, is you, Christian. The most visible demonstration of prophetic speech, of of speech that can actually transform lives, is the transformed life of a Christian. The The most visible demonstration of prophetic speech, of gospel speech, in our time today, is a life that has been changed and shaped by the gospel of Jesus. If you think about it, I mean, verse 25 is actually a quotation from another passage in Isaiah, uh, specifically Isaiah chapter 45, verse 14, where, where surrounding nations will come to Israel because Israel was the only group of people in the world who knew the real God. And now, interestingly, the Apostle Paul sees the church, sees Christians, sees you and me as the fulfillment of that po- passage, of that prophecy in Isaiah chapter 45, that through our prophetic w- witness, through our go- gospel witness, through our lives, through our speech, through even our conduct, non-Christians come to know the living God. And so the question is, again, when you hang out with your non-Christian friends, what impression are they left with when they leave, when you leave? What do you think your role is in a non-Christian's life? Your role in a non-Christian's life, it's not the only role, but your role, your main role, I think, your main role in a non-Christian's life is to be the message of the gospel, walking on two feet. Your role in a non-Christian's life is to be a sermon on two feet, a sermon to a, to a watching world where the message of the gospel is confirmed by the conduct of your life, your speech, your words. The strongest argument for Christianity, therefore, ironically enough, no matter how sometimes terrible Christians are, the strongest argument for Christians is actually Christians themselves, the church, the people whom God saves, not because of how great or worthy we are, because of how great a savior God is in saving us. And I think a lot of us are surprised by that. So many of us are, are convinced that if we just were more eloquent, we just knew more, knew more apologetics, knew more X, Y, Z thing, more intelligent that we can convince others to believe in Jesus and how only if our pastors talk to this person or that person, then this person will be saved and this other person will be saved. But what the value system of our world tries to convince us of is in order to make the cross of Jesus, the the message of the cross credible to others, you must be good looking. You must be smart. You must be articulate. You must be extroverted. You must be in the in crowd. You, You must be all hype. But the whole point of this passage, indeed the whole letter, it is that it's not about that. And it's not about you. Paul points to a different kind of credibility, something completely stripped of what we think is conventionally appealing and compelling. Rather than putting the focus on the messenger, 
the Apostle Paul shines the spotlight simply on the message. If you think about it, Paul wasn't credible because he was an apostle or spoke in tongues or was persuasive. He simply trusted in a credible message. That was it. It was never about the messenger, but the message itself. It's because in trusting the power of the message rather than the messenger, we are not trusting in our own eloquence or our own wisdom or, or, or our own power, but in the power of God who can change lives just as he has done in our lives. And it is when Christians, you and me, this youth group, this high school group, when we are shaped by and speak the message of the cross, that is when people see the gospel on display. That is how non-Christians come to know that God is real. Just as the apostle Paul says in verse 25, it is when Christians live consistently with the message that they proclaim. And sometimes we just forget the simple yet powerful testimony of a faithful Jesus loving Christian. God's powerful presence is manifested in the lives of, you guessed it, faithful, ordinary Christians who confess the gospel together. It is when Christians faithfully love and serve others. It is when Christians die to their own selfishness. It is when Christians look to the cross. This is true maturity. It is when Christians confess the gospel together, where there is a culture of the gospel on display here in this high school group. This is how to grow up. It is a maturity that, that is ultimately shaped by the word of the cross. The first point, perhaps the longest point, perhaps maybe the most applicable point, is that we grow up. We grow up. Second point, almost done here. Second point is we build up. We build up. Okay, uh, take a look finally at verses 26 to 33. Um, yes, I'm looking at a whole chunk of text at one time. But this is what the Apostle Paul says in verse 26. He says, what then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let their, uh, actually, I don't remember where I left off. Let all things be, okay. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or th at most three. And each in turn, and let someone interpret. If there is one to in interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a, if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you, can, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Okay, now the Apostle Paul finally, thank God, lands the plane on spiritual gifts. But, be, but before he concludes, he gives some final instructions. And there are too many things to point out uh, with the time that we have left. But the most important question raised in our last few verses is, what is up with the instructions on speaking in turns and keeping silence? Why is the Apostle, why is the Apostle Paul trying to regulate spiritual gifts? Well, I mean, let's just try to imagine something similar in this youth group. If I had all of you, okay, I'm not, I'm not telling you guys to do this, but I, if I, just imagine, okay? If I had all of you guys unmute yourself and start talking over Zoom, what do you think will happen? On the one hand, you could do it, but on the other hand, it would be crazy. People will be talking over each other. People can't hear what other people are saying. Uh, people who want to talk will not talk. What's the problem with this? The problem is, would be that it would be chaotic and crazy. Yes, but what's the fundamental problem here? The problem is that there is no concern for the other person. It's the reason why the Apostle Paul says that God is not a, a God of confusion, but a God of peace. What the Apostle Paul is calling for in our last few verses is this idea of deference, not preference. 
But deference is more than just being polite or letting someone go first. Um, some of you will remember um, Josh Scott, uh, one of our previous interns for the youth ministry. Um, and uh, I mean, one of the funny things about Josh Scott is, uh, oh, I guess he's just kind of a funny guy in general. But every time we bump into each other, um, as we walk through the church doors, um, we would try to let the other person go first. Um, but jo Josh took it to the to the next level by literally lying on the floor and not getting up at all until I walked through the door first. Um, and that was um, honestly just kind of like, you know, Josh being kind of extra. Um, deference might mean this, uh, but deference more fundamentally is choosing peace by building others up. That's what we see in verse 20. Uh, verse 26, uh, ver yeah, ver at the end of verse 26, that's the main idea. Let all things be done for building up. It is to choose, in other words, it is to choose charity over liberty. This is the fundamental posture of a mature person. A mature person is someone who works for peace and harmony with uh, one another. How? By building one another up. For the Apostle Paul, a Jew, the word for peace wasn't just the absence of conflict. The Hebrew word for peace, shalom, conveyed this idea of wholeness, of completion, the way things always should have been. Now, why does this understanding of shalom matter? It's because to prefer what you want to do, to do what ben only benefits you rather than for the building up of others is to work against shalom, is to work against peace. And so what does peace actually look like in this high school group? Well, peace isn't just merely the absence of conflict and fighting. Peace is actually the, the, the mutual and active, not passive, but active pursuit of one another's good. It is to pursue what benefits others, just as we pursue the benefit of non-Christian friends. And what supposedly mature people fail to realize is that spiritual maturity is not an end in itself. And I think I've mentioned this before, to grow as a Christian, to mature as a Christian is never done for the sake of stoking our own egos or making us look better than others. Because if you think about it, spiritual maturity is not an end in itself, but a gift for others. Your maturity, your growth in Jesus, Christ-likeness is meant to be something that is passed on to other people. Those who are strong, those who are gifted, those who are mature, have a responsibility to care for the weak, the not as gifted, the immature. Now, I think I know. I know for many of you guys, some of you guys are are um, the oldest of your siblings, and uh, there are some of you, uh, some of you guys who are the youngest of your siblings. To the older, you have the spiritual obligation of taking care of the younger. Your position as the older brother or sister is never meant to be a place of privilege, but a place of responsibility a maturity that is shaped by this understanding of the cross here looks out to the immature, not as a way to look down on them, but to lead them to the foot of the cross because that is where true maturity lies. I mean, this is what true peace in this youth group looks like. And as we grow up and as we build up one another, we end up reflecting the very character of God, the God who is peace. When we will work for the peace of one another in this youth group, we are living out the divine reality that God has, made, has first made peace with us. That through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, God restored wholeness to the broken relationship that we had severed with God. This is why the Apostle Paul in Ephesians says that Jesus himself is our peace. And the reason why peace is so important in the church, why it's important for us as Christians to live out, to pursue 
is because Jesus entrusts the work and task of peace to his people. It's the reason why the Apostle Paul, all throughout his letters, instructs the churches that he writes to, to keep unity through the bond of peace. How? It's through deference. It's through humility. It is through patience, through building one another up, through bearing with one another in love. And as we do this, we actually enact and live out the story of the gospel that God through Jesus Christ reconciled us to himself, took upon our sins and made peace with us through his blood. And now as Jesus' body, the church, this, this youth group is God's agent of shalom. That when non-Christians look at Christians, they see within the life of God's people, God's peace. That despite the different backgrounds, giftings, skills, and abilities, however God has gifted you, personalities of this youth group, when non-Christians see this youth group, they get a glimpse into the wholeness and completion God intends to make with the whole creation through Jesus Christ. And so a people centered on Jesus the Messiah first grow up and we build up. Let's pray together. Father, we recognize that this is a message that is in many ways a familiar one. It's not like this is something that's new for a lot of our high schoolers. But for many of our high schoolers, I suspect that it is something that we need to continue to reflect upon. That maturity is not merely exercised or seen or evaluated on the base of on the on, on the basis of on, of knowledge or um, gifting, but it is based on how we love one another, how we pursue that which is beneficial for others. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to grow up. That as, as old as, or maybe perhaps as young as these high schoolers are, I pray that you would grant them the maturity to grow up. To grow up in a way that actually pursues the peace, the unity that is befitting of God's people. And so, Father, we thank you. And we thank you that ultimately you are our peace in Jesus Christ. And we thank you and we love you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, well, you guys are officially uh, dismissed. Um, when did I, how long, how long was that message? I was like, I think it was like, what, 35, 40 minutes? Layton, how long was that? <laughs>